when you don't respond to my tweets, I may call you a disingenuous coward, which, you know, can hurt some people's feelings. <laughs> well, criminal justice reform really does bring people out from all sides, doesn't it? You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. Docket, episode 117. I'm Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. <laughs> it's a beautiful day out, so we have that going for us. And it's the weekend. So, winning on all on all counts. And this is the fourth episode in a row where we've maintained our new schedule. We're really killing it. We told you that we were going to do it regularly. I don't know why people wouldn't have believed us. Two a month. So far, so good. We might even have an extra one this month. I think we will have an extra one this month, um, but we'll keep that uh, under wraps for now. I don't know. Should we just get to it? I feel like that there's like bantery stuff to say, but it feels like nothing in my life is really happening. I guess it's because I'm in the middle of a murder trial and that's sort of all I'm thinking about right now. And you're in the middle of a global pandemic where everything's kind of the same all the time. I think everyone's had that experience of asking someone, how are you? <laughs> it's almost like a canned answer that comes back. Well, you know, everything's fine in the circumstances, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we're managing. I am also in the middle of a Twitter fight with Brian Lilly. I hurt his feelings. What else is new? (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. When you call um, uh, the removal of mandatory minimum sentences uh, BS, uh, that, um, that hurts me. And when you don't respond to my tweets, I may call you a disingenuous coward, which, you know, can hurt some people's feelings. <laughs> well, criminal justice reform really does bring people out from all sides, doesn't it? Yes, it's the one It's the one thing that we can all be passionate about. <laughs> but it's something that we've been wanting for a long time, and we finally have a little sliver of it, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but before we do, I know that you have something to say. I do. I just wanted to tell people about, um, you may recall that we had mentioned on the podcast a couple weeks ago about the passing of the great public interest lawyer, Joe Arvey. And I wanted to let people know that there's a really exciting initiative out of uh, the University of Victoria in uh, Joe Arvey's memory. It's the Joe Arvey Legacy Fund, which has been established in his honor. The purpose of this fund, which I think is a really exciting way to uh, memorialize Joe Arvey, is to support and inspire a new generation of law students to follow in his footsteps as a visionary public interest law advocate. So what they're doing is they're putting together this fund so that they can uh, support students who want to go into this type of area of law, which for many is challenging because with students graduating with more and more student debt, it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to make the choice to pursue less lucrative but very important to the public interest opportunities within the profession. So I wanted to invite any of our listeners or any of our listeners' friends and families who'd be interested in contributing to the Joe Arve Legacy Fund to go to the University of Victoria website. If you just Google, I have a link here and we'll maybe we can post the link, but also if you just Google UVic Joe Arve, you'll you'll be directed there. They're in active fundraising trying to really get this going. So I would really encourage people to consider contributing if they can. Speaking of tragic passings in the legal world, just today, uh, another really inspirational, great, we all stand on the shoulders of uh, this giant uh, lawyer past, Jack Pinkowski, criminal lawyer out of Toronto, uh, mainstay of the criminal defense bar, and a really passionate advocate for civil rights. I mean, if you're a criminal lawyer listening to this and you're getting disclosure from the Crown, uh, you have Jack Pinkowski to, to thank in large part for that. If you're doing a Parks uh, racial challenge for cause uh, on, a, on a juror, um, you have Jack to thank for that. There is the Jack Pinkowski School of Litigation, which is set it for trial and don't, uh, don't surrender an inch of ground that so many lawyers who I've worked with uh, have um, sort of come up under that type of mentorship. And uh, just today, uh, we learned that uh, he passed away. It's sad. It's a real loss to the profession also because he had 
quite a large firm in Toronto and mentored and trained multiple generations of lawyers. I mean, there are lawyers who train directly with Jack Pankowski. There are those who saw him on his feet at Old City Hall and elsewhere in Toronto. Um, and I know that his passing is going to really send a ripple effect throughout the profession. And we certainly send our condolences to his his family, his loved ones, and, and his many, many colleagues um, who he inspired over the years. On some happier news, we're welcoming back Iman Publishing as sponsor of this podcast. Hi, Iman. How are you doing? <laughs> Uh, there was no falling out. It was just me being lazy about, you know, new format and stuff like that and wanted to make sure they were still cool. But my mom was really worried. She, she called me after listening to an episode because it was noteworthy to her that there was no plug for Iman Publishing. And I had to assure her that we would be back. We were just figuring things out. So I'm certainly happy to have them in our corner again. So I'll officially say that this episode is sponsored by Emond Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. And there's a new book coming out in the series. Looks exciting. Friend of the podcast, one of the authors. Nader Hassan, who was on the podcast not that long ago. Search and Seizure uh, comes out February 2021, so that's real soon. <laughs> that's the uh, month we're in right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, by Nader Hassan, Mabel Lay, David Schrambacher, and Randy Schwartz. That's right. And search and seizure law is something that uh, I think is of interest to people outside of criminal practice as well. So, you know, even if it's not necessarily of direct relevance to your work, it's something that you might find interesting. It's a subject area, for example, that your friends and family often ask you about, you know, when can the police search my car? When can like just it's just, you know, I think to to be a, a competent lawyer, you should know at least a little something about police powers and their limits. And there's certainly uh, a wealth of jurisprudence on that in the context of search and seizure. So really helpful to have an up-to-date guide, you know, to, to as a reference. I mean, and it is one of those areas that comes up in every type of cases, like drug cases, fraud cases, like murder cases. Like there's always a search and seizure issue. And it's one of those areas, I mean, when you talk about like statements, right to counsel, there is some evolution in that. But I mean, an accused statement is... I mean, always an accused statement. It's the same now as it was 10 years ago. But with search and seizure, there's tons of development in the law, you know, right now with cell phones and digital searches. What is a place? What is it like? You're right. I think that's that's a big thing. And I also think because search and seizure law is such the bread and butter of a lot of criminal lawyers, that I think some people tend to lean a little more heavily than maybe they should on past precedents. And, and this is an opportunity to update your precedents to make sure that you really have the most up-to-date uh, jurisprudence to rely on in your materials, because you can only cite Hunter versus Southern so many times. You should never cite Hunter versus <laughs> Southern. If you're citing Hunter versus Southern and killing a forest, including it in a case book, uh, you're not doing your work. Anyway, good read and uh, another reason to uh, dislike Natter. He's just got a lot of accomplishments under his belt. And frankly, it's getting quite obnoxious. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't, don't like it. But for our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emond.ca slash docket and enter code docket10 at checkout. And you can um, deny Natter 10% <laughs> of his royalties. <laughs> I'm sure that's how his book deal works. <laughs> We got a justice bill. We did. This is this is a big deal for us because it's been a long, long, long wait. This is a legislation that was tabled in the House last week, which purports at least to tackle some sentencing reform by repealing some mandatory minimum sentences, though not all, and by amending the eligibility criteria for conditional sentences. So, you know, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Got to acknowledge it's a big deal that they've done something. Yeah, I mean, I think how I'd like to talk about it is like this. Perhaps we can divide the bill up into sort of the three main areas that it deals with. Mm -hmm. uh, the first, conditional sentences and expanding the eligibility for conditional sentences. Second, minimum sentences and the repeal of some minimum sentences. And the third area is um, drug policy how the code deals with drug offenses and the new uh, criminal diversion uh, options uh, that they put in the bill. And we can, um, maybe I'll ask you to start what your broad letter grade is 
for each of those offerings. And then we can go through and uh, talk about uh, each of those different topics in, in a bit more detail. Okay. So on reform to the eligibility for conditional sentences, I think I would have to give an A+. I mean, there's a significant broadening of the scope and conditional sentences are now available for some offenses that they're going to kind of have to answer to from the real law and order people. And, you know, I think it was a relatively courageous thing to do. I don't think it is particularly bold in the sense that it's just so overwhelmingly people would say that this is something that they should do. So or, like, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily born of an independent vision or anything like that, but I would give it an A+. We'll get into the specifics. What yeah. about you? I think I'd give it uh, an A+. Um, it is necessary changes. Uh, and as we'll talk about changes that perhaps were inevitable, uh, given that the Ontario Court of Appeal had struck down some of um, some of those conditional sentence restrictions anyway, and the, and the Supreme Court was set to hear it. Mm-hmm. A plus. What That's about um, what about minimum sentences? The 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 um, and we'll get into the details, but the minimum sentences reform in here. What's your brass tax letter grade? Uh, I want to say more like maybe B minus, maybe even C plus. I, I don't think it's goes nearly far enough. I think it's not particularly coherent to understand why they're repealing the ones they are and why they're not repealing the ones they're not, particularly given that there are some still left that have been found unconstitutional by the courts. And for me, I think they should be abolishing them all. And they're only abolishing, I don't want to say a small handful, I'll say like a medium sized handful um, of the mandatory minimum sentences in the code. So I don't think it's going nearly where it needs to be. I think, and we'll talk about this in more detail, that they're leaving in place a number that carry a real risk of, you know, further entrenching, uh, systemic racism in the system, or at least their claim that this move is going to really address racism in the justice system, I don't think is likely to be borne out. So I'm actually quite disappointed. I mean, what would I consider if our kids came home um, after writing a really important test and I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm not going to ground you, but I'm not like going to take you out for ice cream and praise you for it. So like a C plus, um, C, somewhere around there. I mean, it's better than it was before. It's uh, not as bad as reforms could have been. But it doesn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, I think what's going to influence me on giving it a final grade is to see how much back padding the government does about minimum sentences. If they acknowledge that it's a modest reform and a first step, I think that that might have me view it a little more positively. If uh, they string up a mission accomplished banner on the um on the on the battleship that is criminal justice reform and stand out there uh, george bush style and say uh, mission accomplished we've won the battle I, I think i'll be much more negative on it yeah fair and the new drug policies um which uh, allows for some post-charge uh or post-police interaction, uh, diversion. What do you think about those in the context of how it's being billed as um, not decriminalization of hard drugs, but a very, very important step against or towards a progressive uh, drug policy? Yeah, you know, this essentially legislates a kind of a principle of restraint when it comes to the prosecution of drug offenses. And it eliminates all mandatory minimum punishments um, for drugs, which is significant uh, change. Um, But as far as the diversion stuff that we can talk a little bit more about, uh, I don't think it's going to have any impact at all on the ways in which the criminalization of drugs is is contributing to the opioid crisis. So I'd give it like a D, maybe? Yeah, when I when I was initially uh, giving my hot take on it, I think I gave it a C- minus or something like that. I'm moving it down. I think that this is uh, something that is in fact can be harmful, um, has some real negatives. There's a huge opportunity cost. They're leaving a lot on the table. I don't think it's going to make things better in terms of um, you know how drugs are dealt with in the criminal justice system or, or deaths that we're seeing because of drugs or the negative side effects that that go with uh, how we um, regulate and deal with drugs. So I'm gonna say D, and only because it doesn't make things worse. (laughs) 
Yeah, um, I mean... Like, it's not more minimum sentences for drugs. It's not, you know, sort of a, a law and order, tough-on-crime approach on drugs. Um, and it's not nothing. And it's not nothing, but uh, it is not inspiring. No, and I, for me, it feels like the classic weak sauce, like, okay, we kind of have to do something. We have to be seen to be doing something because it's quite impressive and actually inspiring to see the extent to which movements for decriminalization and safe supply have become so much more mainstream, even probably just over the last three years, and probably more so among their supporters or at least more um, less centrist of their supporters. So I think they kind of probably understood politically that they just couldn't introduce like sentencing reform and not in some ways be able to at least try to say that they were doing something to tackle the opioid crisis. But I really don't think this is even in the realm of the types of measures that are necessary. So I mean, maybe before we continue assessing the measures, we could talk a little bit in more detail about what they are. Yeah, I think that that's that's a good idea after our um, hot take uh, grades. Um, let's start with the conditional sentences. So conditional sentences are, for the, for those who don't know what they are, I mean, the easiest way to describe them are uh, jail sentences that you serve at home. Yeah, so it's a conditional sentence of imprisonment, meaning that you're sentenced to jail, but you're ordered to serve your sentence in the community with varying degrees of supervision, depending on the circumstances of the case. So it can be as extreme as full house arrest, where you can only leave an hour a week with someone supervising you to obtain the necessities of life. Or it can be quite considerably less uh, restrictive in the sense that maybe you're allowed to leave your dwelling for the purposes of attending work, for the purposes of childcare. Like, so so in some cases it's, and, and part of it is to mitigate the ways in which people often come out of prison worse than they went in. So having lost their housing, having lost their employment. So it's a way of, you know, still punishing and condemning with a jail sentence. And of course, if you breach any of the conditions of your conditional sentence, you risk being sent back to serve the balance of your sentence in custody. And I think that's an important part, because not only do you risk serving the rest of that conditional sentence uh, in jail, but, you know, the presumption is that you will. And conditional sentences are usually uh, for a longer duration than than the person would have got if they had gotten real in jail jail time. So if you were going to uh, get a sentence of you know one year for an offense, you would likely get a two year conditional sentence. Um, if you were going to get a sentence of ninety days for an offense in jail, you'd probably get a six month conditional sentence. You know, there are strict conditions. Um, Those conditions are monitored through a conditional sentence supervisor. There's often probation that follows as well. But if you breach the conditional sentence, you go back to jail. um, And you've committed a fresh offense because breaching the terms of the conditional sentence is also an offense. Yeah. And that breach could be through non-criminal activity, like breaching a curfew or or, um, having alcohol when you're not supposed to have alcohol or having communication with someone when you're not. And so you, if you breach, you go back to jail and you'll probably serve longer in jail than you would have if you had actually just been sentenced to jail in the first place. So it's far from what some people say a toothless sentence. And there are some sort of general limitations to the availability that maybe we can just talk about briefly. The sentence has to be for less than two years. Right. You can't be on a conditional sentence for like 10 years. Yeah, which totally makes sense. So say you're convicted of something that carries, um, you know, a, a potential sentence of up to five years. As long as the sentence that the judge feels is appropriate for you is less than two years, then a conditional sentence is available. If the offense has a mandatory minimum sentence, a conditional sentence is not available. And obviously over the years with the proliferation of mandatory minimums that made conditional sentences available to fewer and fewer offenders. And most importantly, it can't be uh, an offense uh, or, or the sentence itself can't risk or endanger community safety. And so conditional sentences are more difficult to obtain for, you know, offenses of violence. Yeah, exactly. So the, those are kind of the, I would say, the, the principled limitations when conditional sentences first came in, those were kind of the criteria that were in place. But then over time, Parliament enacted more and more and more restrictions on the availability of conditional sentences, including you couldn't get a conditional sentence if the offence uh, for which you were convicted carried a maximum sentence of 14 years or more. So 
even if for you, the judge felt that the appropriate sentence was one year, which that might sound crazy, but there are a lot of set offenses that have very wide sentencing ranges because they're offenses that can be committed in a very diverse um, series of ways. So in, in those cases, even if for you, the appropriate sentence was one year, because it had up to 14 years punishment, that meant that the conditional sentence was no longer available. Right. This legislation removes that restriction. It also removes the restriction that a conditional sentence isn't available if the offense is prosecuted by way of indictment and the maximum term of of imprisonment is uh, 10 years. And we talked about that on um, a podcast that we did a, a little while ago in Nader Hassan, the Sharma case. And this is, of course, uh, you know, applicable to someone who, in the Sharma case, was bringing drugs into Canada, met all the criteria for a conditional sentence, except bringing drugs into Canada. That was an indictable offense. The punishment is, is, is a maximum of 10 years. Uh, therefore, a conditional sentence was just statutorily unavailable. That condition has also been removed because of this legislation. Yep. And then also over time, just certain types of offenses were excluded, um, including sexual assault, including robberies, like certain certain offenses. And those restrictions are all repealed. So that doesn't mean that people that commit those offenses are all of a sudden going to, on a widespread basis, get conditional sentences. It just means that it will be available when the quote unquote right offender comes along where the criteria would otherwise um, lean towards a conditional sentence being appropriate. Yeah. And some of those just excluded offenses were offenses that, you know, the person could could benefit and society could benefit from having that individual not incarcerated, like theft over $5,000, theft of a motor vehicle, um, I mean, when you have a list that includes, you know, sexual assault, kidnapping, trafficking in people, those those were excluded of offenses. But so was theft of a motor vehicle, theft over five thousand dollars being unlawfully in a dwelling. Um, those are offenses, you know, that can um, be impacted by someone's marginalization. You can be an, an employee that steals $5,000 and you are you wouldn't have been able, even if you were paid the money, even if or, it had been in society's benefit for you to, to, you know, keep on working so that you could make good on your debts to society, you couldn't get a conditional sentence. But now this bill has removed those offenses that were excluded. So it's good because conditional sentences are seen as being really important tools for kind of striking that balance between punishment on the one hand, but rehabilitation on the other. And there's no better way to set a person up for a successful rehabilitation than keeping them supported within their community where they can, you know, maintain continuity in terms of their housing, their employment. So I I definitely see this. And and it, it takes some courage to, you know, for example, by making this change, a conditional sentence is available for certain trafficking offenses, sexual assaults. Now, again, it doesn't mean that they're going to be imposed in a large number of cases necessarily, but um, you can be assured that that this legislative change will not only be leveraged and exploited by, you know, the the right wingers out there, but it will also be manipulated and twisted to say, you know, the liberals are soft on sexual violence and that kind of thing. So, you know, it takes a degree of courage. So I think it's and it's an important step. It does. Let me let me say a couple of other good things and then a couple of other reasons to be perhaps a little less muted in the praise. Removing conditional sentences are, is also going to help with delays in the criminal justice system. Um, conditional sentences are a good way for charges to resolve. It's going to prevent a lot of things from going to trial because, you know, the most appropriate resolution uh, can be obtained. Um, you know, we always have to be worried about coercive effects. Now that conditional sentences are available, it can be very coercive to plead guilty when you when you know you, that jail's going to be taken off the table. But I think it's going to go a long way to make sure that only the most serious and uh, matters end up going to trial and that we use our limited trial time for those most serious matters. So I think it's going to help there as well. And it's also going to help in crafting appropriate sentences that will have the side effect of dealing with the disproportionate proportionate incarceration um, of racialized and marginalized individuals. We know that in our in, in in our jails, indigenous offenders, black offenders, you know, poor offenders, marginalized offenders are way disproportionately uh, incarcerated. And this is a way to potentially deal uh, or put another option on the table to address the over incarceration of, of 
particular group. So I think that it's going to have some cascading benefits. And it is, but we should also remember that it is still a form of incarceration. So it's not institutional incarceration, but we still want to remember that it is an intermediary type tool, but it's not... Um, you know, like true prison abolitionists, for example, would still see this as a form of of incarceration. And, you know, we need to keep that in mind, That especially because like these are not joke sentences. They're still hard sentences to serve for a lot of people. Quite right. And, and then that, that leads into sort of, you know, why praise should be slightly muted here. I mean, this rolls back um, some changes that were made under the, the conservative government, the, the Harper government. And so it's taking us back to the time before that. Um, so... In the sense that this is progress, it's progress because we're turning back the clock, which is an odd way to actually pat yourself on the back and say that you're progressing things. Yeah, it's upending a regression rather than representing a true progression. So, I mean, like, there we are. We have to also remember that the government is in court right now litigating a matter in the Supreme Court of Canada um, against, uh, again, in the Sharma case, where the Court of Appeal uh, found these uh, conditional sentence restrictions unconstitutional. So uh, on the one hand, they've introduced this legislation. On the other hand, quite specifically, the minister dodged questions about whether the government was going to continue with their appeal of the, of the Ontario Court of Appeal's decision in Sharma. Yeah, and I mean, this isn't law yet. But if you think it's the correct outcome, then why would you con- continue Call to fight the lawyers, case in right? court? Because you should be prepared to accept a higher court finding it's unconstitutional or having the Court of Appeal decision stand. And I'm glad that this legislation is is there. It's important. The government has acknowledged that it's important and has acknowledged that it is uh, a necessary change to deal with some big problems in the criminal justice system. Um, that was true last year. It was true the year before. It was true in 2016. It was true in 2015. I think the government should explain why it took so long to introduce this legislation when there is an election potentially on the horizon. And my concern is that this bill is less about getting things done now and is about signaling some virtue or writing a election uh platform. I mean, this applies to all the sections of this bill. If this bill, because it's so important, isn't moved through Parliament very quickly and passed, and if it's left to die on the order paper, and if it's just to a, a prelude to you know an election promise, um, that would be very cynical, and any goodwill uh, generated uh, by the government, you know, any goodwill from me uh, would evaporate. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think also for how long we've waited, and it's it's been many, many years since 2015 now. You kind of might have hoped that you'd get something like a little more uh, substantial or farther reaching or a little more ambitious, like that it would have taken time to where this is kind of like, you know, OK, they removed their restrictions on conditional sentences. Then they've they've obviously gone through and looked at every offense, uh, every set mandatory minimum that's been found unconstitutional and. I don't know if they used a dartboard or what, but repealed some and not repealed others. But there's nothing like it's exactly like I like how you put it, that it's not so much progress as it's undoing a regression. But the progress was needed. Sentencing reform was was very much needed before Harper, you know, went on his law and order orgy. So, yeah. So, I mean, that it's, is it's fine, the, but... Uh most twisted visual that I've ever had on <laughs> A law progress. and order orgy. Well, and the other thing is... I just don't see how the Liberals could face the electorate in another election without having done something on mandatory minimum. So the cynical side of what you're saying is like, they really had to do that. So maybe we can just talk quickly about the changes that they have made. Let's for do it. We're bumping minimums. up against our hard, our hard cap already. I know. So mandatory minimums, the bill, I mean, in broad strokes, the bill eliminates mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses and for firearm offenses with a few exceptions. Most of the minimum sentences um, that have been repealed um, have already been found unconstitutional either by the Supreme Court or a court of appeal in in various provinces. And there are many minimum sentences, um, some jail sentences, some fines for various offenses that for some reason aren't repealed. That's right. And I would encourage people to listen very closely about uh, to the ways in which the liberal government talks about mandatory minimum sentences, because 
they talk about them using rhetoric that I predominantly agree with about how harmful they are, but they sort of neglect to acknowledge their own complicity, complicit, complicitness in that very large numbers of mandatory minimum sentences in the criminal code were in fact enacted by liberal governments and some of those are staying in place. And so, you know, different liberal governments, I'm not saying it was, you know, the Trudeau government, although they have a couple little mandatory minimums that they've put in as well. But this is not just a Stephen Harper thing. Like mandatory minimum sentences predated Stephen Harper. Um, no, and Justin, when Justin Trudeau was an MP, he voted for mandatory minimum sentences in the drug context. So, I mean, the past is the past. Let's let's erase the past. I think it's good that these minimum sentences are being repealed. But one wonders from a first principle perspective why firearm and drug minimum sentences are being repealed and not some of the other minimum sentences in the criminal code, including other minimum sentences in the criminal code that have also been found to be unconstitutional. That's right. So I, I would love to hear a rationale from the government for why they've selected the ones that they have. I mean, I'll give you the rationale. The rationale is... Politically, we can justify drug minimum sentences, politically uh, firearms minimum sentences because of other firearms restrictions. We can have a balance there, but there's no way in heck that the government is going to get rid of minimum sentences for murder um, or for sexually based offenses, even though that even though some of those have been found unconstitutional because that is uh, would open them up to an attack. And that's where principles fall down. Where I will give them some credit is they could have done, they could have gone for a measure less direct than the one that they took. I think we talked about it last week, actually. We talked about it. Like they they could have put like a very restrictive, uh, very limited in scope, catch-all residual discretion. Safety valve. A safety valve. So they could have just enacted one provision of the criminal code that said every minimum sentence in this code, maybe they would have excluded murder from that. Maybe not, but every minimum sentence is subject to a limited residual discretion in a judge where imposition of said sentence would be so manifestly unfair and so out of proportion to the gravity of the offense that it would essentially constitute an unconstitutional sentence in the context of that offender. And the way it works now is if it would be unconstitutional for any offender, it's unconstitutional, period, even if it's not unconstitutional in the context of this particular offender. Oh, it could have been terrible because a safety valve like that would have actually made constitutional all of the minimum sentences that have been found unconstitutional. That's right. And it would have been a safety valve that applied probably too narrowly, actually, in practice. So it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, so to that extent, like I think that's good. And then the other area, I I guess, where I'll give them a bit of credit, although you've sort of tempered my enthusiasm with what you said just a minute ago, is I do think it takes like a certain amount of, I'm going to say political courage. I don't think it's moral courage or anything, but to eliminate mandatory minimums for firearms offenses at the same time that you're attempting to position yourself politically as being hard on guns. So, and that is right now. I mean, I actually find a lot of the rhetoric over the top um, in the way they talk about how they're going to crack down on gun violence. Because again, I think a lot of the measures they're proposing there are more style over substance kind of in terms of whether they'll really have the desired impact, but still like to be, to be kind of aggressively positioning yourself as a government that is going to get guns off the streets. And at the same time you repeal a number of mandatory minimum sentences for guns and also knowing what a wedge issue that is with conservatives, the firearm stuff. You know, I think that's, I'm happy to see that they did that. Although again, they've primarily done it for provisions where the courts have already found it to be unconstitutional. So they don't have a lot of wiggle room there. And I mean, that's still going to save some court time. I've had to relitigate some of these minimum sentence provisions, even though they've been struck down by superior courts, um, you know, having to relitigate them again. So it it is going to save some court time. It does bring coherence uh, across Canada with respect to those uh, minimum sentences. I don't think it's going to change that much. I don't think you can say that this is a measure that addresses systemic racism or disproportionate incarceration of of black offenders, for example. I don't think that it can go that far. It's a good thing. It rolls back the clock a little bit, but there's a lack of coherence there and and there's more that could have been done. And let me just talk briefly about um, what they haven't done when it comes to firearms offenses. So There are a number of offenses in the criminal code that deal with firearms. I'll just give an example. Okay, weapons trafficking. 
Okay, so there's a prohibition against weapons trafficking, and then there's a, another part to the prohibition on trafficking that essentially makes it a more serious offense if you traffic a weapon for the benefit of a criminal organization or a terrorist group. So the mandatory minimums in that context are not repealed. That is problematic because of the ways in which police tend to view any group of young black males um, as a gang and therefore part of a criminal organization. And in particular, it means that, for example, with the weapons trafficking, if you pay a young black guy to, you know, take a gun and move it from A to B, they're not necessarily profiting in any real way. The They are in this type of context, probably often people, young people that are living in poverty and that have a lot of incentives to take a small amount of money to do something that feels relatively low risk, the mandatory minimum would attach for that person. And so I think, you know, it will remain to be seen, but there are people who are pointing to the ways in which the criminal justice system already in how it defines terrorism and how it defines organized crime tends to perpetuate the targeting of racialized people. And so if, as they say, their goal in eliminating mandatory minimums is trying to get at that very particular systemic problem within the justice system, there are concerns that by leaving these offenses intact and the man mandatory minimums intact, that they will also be able to manipulate people and leverage, you know, plea deals and stuff with the threat of the minimum sentence hanging over them. Well, we could say it was a criminal organization. We could do this. So it's a shortcoming, in my view, of how they've tackled firearms. And remember that, like, courts take firearms offenses very seriously. So it's not to say that by eliminating the mandatory minimum, all of a sudden, every person convicted of a firearms offense is going to get some kind of a walk. Like, that is just not the they, reality. The argument that um, by removing minimum sentences, courts ha or the government has reduced sentences for serious gun offenses exactly. isn't true, except, except. Um, I believe that there is a judge. I believe that her name is uh, Justice Arbor. Never heard of her. Um, she, in one of uh, a Supreme Court cases she authored, um, uh, wrote that mandatory minimum sentences act as an inflationary floor for sentencing, meaning that it moves up what sentences you would otherwise give. And so the government hasn't... Um, lowered sentences for gun offenses or drug offenses. But I guess one could say, if they're being intellectually honest and nuanced about things, the removal of this inflationary floor might have the effect, in some cases, of reducing sentences. But of course, the people who say that, um, and I'm speaking to you, Brian Lilly, um, the people <laughs> who say that uh, the government's position is BS, his words, and that removing minimum sentences is actually getting soft on gun crime. Uh, they, of course, don't have that nuance and intellectually honest position that I just took. So let's move on to the diversionary aspects uh, of this bill. So maybe you can explain what diversion is, because I expect that there are many people who don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about diversion. So post-charge diversion or pre-charge diversion, there are ways to take criminal conduct and move it away from the criminal justice system by either not laying charges or withdrawing charges in exchange for something. Sometimes it can be in exchange for paying restitution. You can get a charge diverted. Sometimes, um, you know, you break a window uh, because you've been drinking too much on the way home from a bar and, and you're being rowdy. Um, if you can show some efforts at um, alcohol counseling, they might uh, divert that mischief charge. You pay to have the window repaired. You go to some alcohol treatment you get the the charge withdrawn. And, you know, there is drug diversion in many courts as well that allows someone who's been charged with a drug offense to, after they complete some, um, some diversion or a court program, that the charge can be withdrawn. And it can happen at the, like you said, at the pre-charge stage. So sometimes it can just be the police. It's sort of like an informal type of diversion, or it can happen after charges. And it's it's a double-edged sword. There are things that are good about it, and then there's concerns about over-reliance on diversion. And so diversion is a thing that exists already. We um, see prosecutors diverting drug charges, and let's talk about drugs specifically, because that's what the bill talks about. Uh, in fact, uh, very recently, the Public Prosecution Service, they were given directives by the independent um, public prosecution, uh, director of public prosecutions, not to prosecute simple drug offenses of possess people possessing drugs for their own 
own consumption. And so we've seen, and I've seen, a lot of those um, simple possession charges be either diverted or dropped or, you know, something creative worked out. So we're already seeing that sort of diversion happening through prosecutorial discretion. Police officers also have been able to divert youth charges, divert other charges, and do more informal diversion. Diversion like they catch you, rich white kid, uh, smoking a joint when you're not supposed to, and they take your marijuana and they throw it away and they say, don't ever let me see you around here again. So there's always the option for police to divert charges one way or the other. In this bill, uh, there's an entire new part part uh, in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that um, starts with a declaration of principles. So it basically sets out all of the reasons that we need to kind of rethink our approach to the criminalization of drugs, the fact that, and I'm, I'm enumerating the actual principles here, uh, problematic substance use should be addressed primarily as a health and social issue. Interventions should be founded on evidence-based best practices and should aim to protect the health, dignity, and human rights of individuals who use drugs. Uh, Criminal sanctions imposed in respect of possession of drugs for personal use can increase the stigma associated with drug use and are not consistent with established public health advice. Interventions should address the root causes of problematic substance abuse, including by encouraging measures such as education, treatment, aftercare, rehab, and social reintegration, and judicial resources are more properly used in relation to offenses that pose a risk to public safety. Now, totally agree with those principles. (laughs) And I would put forward that the current government is much better at articulating principles than they are at implementing measures that reflect the principles that they claim to, to believe so strongly in. So the the principles and the for people that don't understand when you put principles like that in legislation the goal is that it's supposed to inform judicial interpretation of the rest of the parts of that legislation right right and so and this legislation goes on and just to sort of summarize it the legislation says if you're a police officer you shall you must consider um, diversion for you know personal consumption drug offenses that's right so it's you it's it's made ostensibly mandatory so a police officer shall and it's for any for one offense which is personal possession simple possession consider whether it would be appropriate to do something other than lay a charge however i think what's really important to note is that the very next provision says that the charges are not invalidated if the officer fails to consider measures short of laying in information that's right. I mean, it tells the police officers to do it, and there's absolutely no consequence. I mean, they could consider it and say, yeah, I considered it, I rejected it, based off, because I didn't like the cut of his jib. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if the officer says, I didn't consider it, and I'll never consider it, there's nothing that happens. It doesn't invalidate the charge. And not only does it not invalidate the charge, but there's no recourse for an accused person who has a charge laid, laid against them with no evidence that the officer actually considered diversion. The bill goes on to say that prosecutors should, um, applying the principles, basically to, to summarize legislation quickly, applying those principles when they can, the prosecution should um, usually divert these charges as well or do everything they can to divert the charges after they get to court. And I mean, that's what's happening already. But where this bill really falls down, it's like, yes, police officers should consider diversion, Crowns should also divert when they can. The real problem is that the bill doesn't recognize that it's the criminalization of drug offenses that actually cause harm. And that means that people who are addicted to drugs, there's harm just because it's criminal. Criminalizing addiction drives it underground, uh, increases stigma, makes people fearful of the police, fearful of intervention, can lead to people suffering overdoses by themselves and can put up a real barrier to you know, successful harm reduction or successful treatment. And this bill does nothing to address the harms that go along with criminalization. The other real problem from my perspective is that, yes, a prosecutor might divert the charge, but that could take weeks or months before that occurs. And during that time, an individual is wrapped up in the criminal justice system, is living with conditions, can fail to appear in court, can have some other minor breach of conditions that leads to other criminal conduct, and can be denied employment or treatment or other opportunities because they have outstanding charges. And that's a real problem as well. And lastly, divert them to where? 
The problem now is that there isn't enough treatment. We don't have enough funding for treatment. And so, yeah, the police can divert them. Where? How? They're, that's not funded. And just on a principal basis, this health issue should not be dealt with in the criminal code at all. I was, I was talking to someone else about it, and they were, you know, not really understanding, you know, the, the problems about how we shouldn't deal with addiction in the criminal justice system because it's just a bad way to deal with addiction. And the, the easiest thing to say is, well, let's criminalize cancer. Is If we make cancer illegal, is it going to get rid of cancer? No, it's going to take away resources from treatment and care, increase stigma, destroy people's lives more with no appreciable benefit. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And I think the point you make about divert to where is really important because typically a lot of these um, diversionary measures are into established programs. So it's not it's it's often not something as simple as, oh, make restitution. It, it might be, you know, participate in an anger management course. But if those courses are not available, then even police officers who have done their statutory duty and considered diversion, if there's nowhere to divert to, then it's not going to be seen as an appropriate uh, way to proceed. So and I think the broader point that it still leaves everything to discretion. And as long as it remains in the realm of discretion, it means there is still a possibility of a full blown prosecution. And it's that the fear of that that drives people underground, not Wait being able to second. count on discretion being exercised in your favor. Are you saying that police officers might have either overt or subconscious bias in how they exercise their discretion? I think I'm hinting at that. Yes. Yes, I do. I think I am. Um, and even if it's not driven by bias, even if you're exactly the person who's likely to have ex- a discretion exercised in your favor, there's no guarantee. And so it's better for you to just not get caught than to hope that things are going to go the way that, you know, some principles the liberals have articulated, you know, would like things to go. And these are the same police officers who we've been talking about for the last year on a broad societal level not using their discretion properly, and the harm that can come when police officers have contact with people with mental health and addiction issues and people who are not white. And so let me give you two scenarios and you can tell me which one's more likely to, uh, to re- receive the benefit of discretion. A rich white banker who gets caught with a little bit of cocaine coming back from his rich white banker job mm-hmm. into the nice neighborhood or a marginalized 20-year-old black kid who has had prior contact with the criminal law um, who lives in poverty. Who do you think is more likely to receive the benefit of the doubt from the police officer? Can I go with the white guy? I think so. Yeah, And we know that. We know that from study after study. We know that from how marijuana laws were enforced. We know that from carding practices. We know that in Ottawa from the traffic and race study about who's pulled over. I mean, we know this. And so in a bill about tackling the opioid crisis, this does nothing. It's not going to actually save people's lives and in a bill about making sure that we remove systemic discrimination and racism from our justice system this actually seems like it might perpetuate it as opposed to combat it yeah so i think i mean what i'm looking forward to is hearing from some people with some expertise on these issues and really i'll be following closely um how in particular um, advocates for decriminalization are reacting to this but also I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to have a couple of those voices on the podcast um, to share their expertise with our listeners on these points. Because, you know, I think most people will agree that these measures fall short, if not far short. But what I'd be really keen to hear from uh, some folks on is what they think it will take, um, what kind of measures the government should be putting forward if they're serious about um, offering real solutions to the opioid crisis. Yeah, this this last diversion bit was basically lifted from Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's private member's bill. Um, and it was good for a private member's bill because it's what you can do to move the ball forward. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily good for a government bill. And I think that the, the real problem here is even if it doesn't hurt things, there's an opportunity cost. And if you're going to do it, do it right. And we have to get over the idea that incrementalism is a good policy when it comes to these really important public health reforms. 
um, you know, this idea that, no, we just move the ball forward and we'll hear this with people defending this bill. No, this moves the ball forward a little bit. And then we just need to move it forward again a little bit and, and again in a little bit. People are dying. People don't live incremental lives and addiction. They don't die incremental deaths. And so, you know, the fact that you're moving the ball forward a little bit, number one, that only is satisfactory if I'm confident that you're going to move the ball forward again and again and again. And I'm not confident that that's going to happen because this government may not do it and this government may not be around. Um, There may be another government at some point. And even if I knew in 10 years we would get the ball over uh, or we'd get across the finish line, between now and when that happens, there's going to be countless people who suffer harm today, um, who quite frankly aren't aren't satisfied in waiting for your 10-year incremental plan. Agreed. So not terrible is probably the nicest thing that I've said uh, about a criminal justice bill in the last 15 years. Yeah, because we certainly talked about some measures, even from this government, that have done more harm than good. And I don't think this falls into that category. I just don't think it undoes enough harm. And I, I really agree with your assessment that it will also be interesting to really scrutinize how they talk about what kinds of impacts they claim that this legislation is going to have. Because, you know, I've already heard David Lametti talking about it in the context of, you know, dealing with systemic discrimination in the justice system. And I really don't think this is a, you know, a bill that's going to go very far on that. So, you know, how self-congratulatory are they going to be? History would suggest it won't be insignificant. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I totally agree with you that I, I hope it won't be a mission accomplished scenario in their minds because there's a lot more work that needs to be done. If only we had a law reform commission that could just keep plugging away at these issues. That would be great. I just had that idea right now. That would be great. <laughs> um, and I mean, lastly, I I do want to say that, that like, this... In conditional sentences, it's a big, it's a, it's a good step. In minimum sentences, it is not the worst way that it could have played out, not the best way. And in this drug diversion stuff, I mean, it could be a lot better, but I don't think that this is going to make things worse. And and so I think that you know, there should be some props given to the government for at least doing this much. But certainly that doesn't absolve them of the delay in getting here. And it doesn't paper over the fact that this might not be satisfactory, you know, in the long term that they could have done better. Agreed. So we'll keep our eyes on that and we'll certainly bring forward any developments that we hear of. All right. So I think that's about it. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in two weeks. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter, at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter, at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it, oh, oh. you got nothing legit, oh. 